We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. And if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible on your phone or tablet or device of some kind, whether you're here in person or tuning in from home, uh, it's good to have you with us. And you can turn in that Bible uh, to Luke chapter 10. Uh, This week we're continuing uh, a message from last week. This is part two of two parts, Lord willing, um, uh, on what do we need to know for ministry. And I I don't think there's a more fitting time for us to talk about this idea of the things that we need to know from Jesus for ministry than on the week of 175 years as a church. And I wish, as we, as we start out, I wish that I could convey to you how rare that is. Because if you understood truly how rare it is for a church to continue to be a church and to do ministry in its community for 175 years, then each and every one of us would be in utter awe of God and all that he has done. Because let me tell you, this does not happen often. Whenever I accepted your call to be your lead pastor a couple years ago, I told you this then as well, that churches do not tend to have this kind of lifespan. They don't tend to last like this one has. And so for me, it was, I, was, I was in awe of God asking me to stand here with you. Because, not because of, of how incredible we are, but because of how incredible he is. That he has done what he has done here. 175 years of gospel ministry. That is something to celebrate. And I hope it is something that we continue to celebrate each and every day and year that the Lord gives us together doing gospel ministry together from here on out. Because that's what those 175 years are. They are days and months and years that the Lord has given us together to serve him, to worship him, to be on his mission together. And he is the one who has done anything and everything that we have to celebrate. He is the one who, over those 175 years, has called people to himself through the various ministries that this church has had throughout its lifespan thus far. He is the one who has changed hearts and lives. He is the one who has saved sinners and given them an eternity with him. He is the one who has sustained faithful saints by his grace to the end of their days when we say goodbye to them and they enter into glory with God and we celebrate even as we grieve our loss of them as they enter into his presence. And he is 
the one who will sustain each and every one of us who trust in his son as well. He is glorious. He is good. He is gracious, and he has been kind to us for 175 years. It's incredible. It is incredible. And so I just want to start our time together this morning by looking up in front of you and just saying thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. That, that is the only way that we could start a day like today. And, and as we enter into our message this morning, as we consider just some of the things, and there's no way that we can consider all the things that we need to know for ministry in one or even two messages or even a series of messages, but there are some things in Luke chapter 10 that as we saw last week and as the Lord will show us this week as well, that we need to know for ministry and to continue to do ministry for Lord willing many years to come. And I think some of the things that the Lord will hopefully show us this morning from his word are some of the things that we need to know so that we can have another year of ministry, another five years of ministry, another, maybe even if the Lord wills it, 175 years of ministry together as a church. And so I hope this morning that he will begin to show us some of these things that need to be ingrained in our hearts and minds that drive our actions and words as we leave this place after gathering to worship together this morning. And so Luke chapter 10, as we get into it, I want you to be aware, even though we've got much to celebrate this morning, I want to make us aware of a couple of our challenges as well. Because there is no time like celebrating what the Lord has been doing for 175 years than to reflect on how we can walk with him more faithfully in the next year, 5, 10, 20, however long the Lord gives us, even if it would be 175 years together doing ministry. And so this morning, I want, I want us to be aware of a couple of challenges that we have as a church as we go into the message. And those challenges are challenges that I think most churches have. And so when I, when I talk about these challenges, I'm not talking about challenges that are unique to JBC. I'm talking about challenges that churches who do ministry together for long periods of time have. Churches have these challenges. And being aware of the challenges that I'm about to describe to you is one of the first steps to overcoming some of those challenges. And Lord willing, seeing him do some incredible things in and through us in the years to come. And so I've got two challenges that I want you to be aware of this morning. You can call them challenges, obstacles, uh, or, or just things that we need to be more cognizant of, aware of, so that we can walk with the Lord and serve him faithfully where he's called us. And the first, the first that we tend to have, that churches tend to have, is that 
we tend to, after seeing God do some really cool things for a long period of time, what we tend to do is we tend to become content with a surface-level kind of Christianity and church ministry. Do you know what I'm saying even before I explain it? We, we get content with a, a status quo where what this is all about is we get together on, on a Sunday morning for worship and, and we have our routine. And I know 2020 has kind of like thrown that routine off a little bit and changed some things. But I mean, it's still the routine, right? Even if you're tuning in from home right now due to the pandemic and concerns and such, which are legitimate, even in the midst of a year like 2020, we still have this kind of routine that we get into and we get content with our routine and we miss what the God of glory wants to do, not only in the routine, but beyond it. We get content with this version of Christianity that's really surface level, where, yeah, I, I, I made a decision years ago to follow Jesus and prayed a prayer, got baptized even, and maybe I read my Bible, maybe I read my Bible every day, and I go to church, but that's really all it is for us. That's kind of on the individual level. It just becomes this routine of life, and, some, and, and routines are not a bad thing. So don't hear me say routine like it's a bad word. Routines are, are not a bad thing at all. In fact, routines, God, God has this redemptive way of using things in our lives like routines for his glory in tremendous, incredible ways. And so the reasons that we gather each week for worship the reasons that we read the Bible each day and we pray and the reason we practice spiritual disciplines, the reason we do these things is not because it's something we should do, although certainly it is. It's because God works in incredible ways when we meet him in his word and when we gather with the saints for worship and for ministry. Jesus does incredible things, even through our routines. But what I'm trying to point out is that in the midst of our routines, our hearts tend to become content with just the routine itself rather than the God who is working in and through it. You see what I'm saying? We do this on an individual level, and then we do it on a, on a corporate, like, church-wide level as well. We get into our rhythms, and we become content with just what, what we've always done. The way it's always been done, we're content with that. And then we just keep going like that. But what if God, what if God had more for us than just what we've done before? And again, don't hear me saying that as though what we've done before is in any way a bad thing. What we have is 175 years of things to celebrate. And what I'm saying is let's not let our hearts get to this place where we're just content with that. 
Let's be thankful and grateful and praise God for what he has done in 175 years of ministry. And let's pray expectantly and be ready to jump in as to whatever he's going to do in the next years to come. Let's let our hearts be filled with worship for what God has done and then let that worship and love for him and what he's done drive us to excitement about what he will do and to not become complacent and content with the status quo. So that's the first thing I want us to be aware of. The second thing is is I think, again, individually and corporately, churches and Christians, we have this tendency over time to, to ease into this inwardly focused mindset where everything that we do is, is really about us. And, and that kind of complacency that I mentioned, it, it kind of drives us to that place where, where we begin to think that the things we're doing in our relationship with God are about us. The things that we're doing as a church are about us. We begin to see things through the lens of what can this do for me? How can this make me more happy and content in my life? Rather than seeing all of this, both our lives as individuals and our life as a church, our ministry as a church together, as an opportunity to serve the Lord God Almighty, our Redeemer and friend, and to be about Him and what He wants to do in and through us. So we, be, we begin to become complacent and then we begin to kind of focus inward on, on us. And it's, it's very contrary to the mission that Jesus has given us, right? Because the mission that Jesus has given us is to make disciples to the ends of the earth. Starting here where he's placed us, where he's called us, and then going throughout all of the earth, all the nations, making disciples of him, teaching people what it means to follow him, obey him, walk with him. Trust in him. I mean, we have been given a glorious and grand purpose, Christians, brothers and sisters. God has made us a part of something that is so much bigger than even J-Town Baptist that's been here for 175 years. He has made us a part of something that has been his plan for thousands of years. That is his eternal redemptive plan for all of creation. He's made us a part of that. And so I want you to be aware this morning as we jump into the rest of Luke 10 that we have these, these couple challenges, dangers, obstacles to overcome and they are challenges, dangers, obstacles that not just we have as a church but that all churches struggle with the tendency to become complacent and to turn inward instead of to be in awe of God and to be focused outward on mission together. 
And so with those things in mind and celebrating all that God has done, looking forward expectantly to what he will do, let's jump into the rest of Luke chapter 10. And if, if you weren't here last week or you missed last week's message, that should be on our Facebook page and podcast. You can catch the first five points of this nine-point message from last week, okay? Um, and you can see some of the things that we learned from Jesus about what we need to know for ministry there. But we're going to look at four more things today. So these are points you know, six through nine uh, of the nine things in chapter 10 that I want us to see about what we need to know for ministry. Start with me uh, in verse 17. So if you weren't here last week, uh, you didn't catch that message. What, what we talked about last week was Jesus has, has taken uh, 72 others. So not the 12 disciples, but 72 other people. And he's now equipped them and sent them out on mission to do ministry. And as they went, he gave them some instructions. What to expect, what to do, how to go about this. And now we get to the point where the 72 that he sent out are returning from their their mission. He sent them to different cities to to heal the sick, care for the hurting, preach the kingdom of God. And we talked last week about how uh, there's so much involved in ministry. There's caring for hurting people, and then there's preaching the gospel to the ends of the earth. And part of even preaching the gospel is not just preaching the good news of God's grace in Christ, but it's also preaching judgment on sin. That's kind of where we left it last week was Jesus had just talked about the judgment that was awaiting those who had rejected him. Because to reject the message was to reject the one who sent it. In verse 16, right before we get to our passage today, Jesus says, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me, talking about God the Father. And so to reject Jesus is to reject God, to reject Jesus' messengers, and the message that he has sent them with is to reject Jesus himself. And and, and the 72, they're going to come back, and what you'll see is they are thrilled with what God has done. They are thrilled with what they've been able to do, more particularly. You'll see that here in just a second. But Jesus has done some incredible things in the lives of these 72 disciples that he sent out. And part of what we talked about last week is that what began with the 12 went to the 72. Then in the second volume that Luke writes for us, the book of Acts, we see spread to the rest of the church and all the disciples who would be to come. And then today continues on in and through us who follow Jesus. And so Jesus is still doing his work through his people by the power of his spirit. And that's what we're a part of. So look with me, the return of the 72, starting in verse 17. The first thing I want you to see this morning as we read 17 through 20, this first paragraph, is that we must rejoice in salvation over success in ministry. Here's what we read. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. 
Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the disciples, the, the 72, they come back from doing incredible ministry, seeing God work in incredible ways, and they are in awe, not of what God has done for them and in their lives, but in what they've been able to do. They're in awe of their success in ministry. You know, sometimes I think the Lord keeps us from success because he loves us. Because he knows that our hearts are prone to wander. He knows that we are tempted to rejoice in what we've been able to do, what we've seen, our experiences, the things that we've been able to be a part of, rather than the bigger picture, which is God himself and what he has done for us, not what we could do for him. So the first, the first thing today that I want you to see that we must know for ministry is that we must rejoice in salvation over success. Because listen, friends, it is miraculous and supernatural when someone places their faith in Jesus. It is a redemptive work of God when someone trusts in Christ and walks with him. It is something glorious and amazing and redemptive and beautiful that God has done. And and if he has done that for you, that is what you must rejoice in. Not in anything that you do for him or that he does through you. I mean, those things are great and we ought to thank God and praise God for them, sure. But... If our focus begins to become our success in ministry and that begins to take up our hearts, then we miss the God who has called, it to, called us to it anyways. Do you see what I'm saying? There's a, there's a focus shift that needs to happen here. And as, and as a pastor, this is one of, one of the most tempting things for pastors, Okay. We're, we're, we're tempted to, to focus our hearts in on success in ministry. And gosh, it just, it will crush you. It will crush you. Because here's, here's the thing. The only thing that you can do in ministry is be faithful to the Lord to walk with him and serve him wherever he's called you and whatever he's asked you to do. That's all you can do. Everything that happens, all the results, people getting saved, baptized, if, if God decides to grow a church, all of that is God. It's not you. It's not me. It's not you. It's God. God has called us to serve him. He's called us to do the work of ministry together, church. And and we should and we must do it. But success, if if we even want to talk about it that way, which I'm not even sure that that's the right thing for us to do, 
but maybe we talk about kind of results. God is the one who brings those about. The 72, they return and they're rejoicing because they've been able to cast out demons. Whenever it says, uh, behold, I get, whenever Jesus says, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, he, he's talking about the demonic forces that oppose the kingdom of God. He, he's not saying to us now today, hey, hey Christians, you can, you can hold snakes and, and they won't hurt you. Like if you've ever heard of the snake handling churches, this is not, this is not the point of this passage. You hold on to a venomous snake and you're not careful, it's going to get you, okay? That's not the point of this passage. And I know there's that passage where Paul got bit by the, the viper and then he survived. And so some people are like, hey, this is what this means. That's not what it's talking about. God allowed Paul to survive so that he could continue to use Paul in some tremendous ways that were key to the early church and to us being here today. I mean, he wrote most of our New Testament. Okay, so Paul was pretty unique, so I don't recommend handling vipers, okay? That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about how Jesus had given his authority to his servants for the work of ministry, and they saw some incredible things happen, and they began to focus on the results and on themselves more than they were focused on God and what God had done for them. And so the first thing that we must realize is we must rejoice in salvation over success in ministry. We must rejoice that our names are written in heaven, that Jesus has redeemed us and made us his own. That is where our focus and our worship lies, friends. It's right there. That's the first thing we've got to notice this morning. Let's move on. Verse 21, the second thing I want you to see is that we must understand God reveals himself to us. I've already hinted at this, talked about this a little bit, but read it with me. In that same hour, he, talking about Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Do you see the whole trinity there? So there are, there are sometimes, this is just a side note, there are some churches and, and denominations and such that, that teach something that is, is heresy, it's false teaching, it's called modalism, where, where God is not triune, he's not the trinity, he's not father, son, and spirit who eternally coexist at the same time, instead he's one person who shows himself in different ways at different times, as Father sometimes, and then in other moments as Jesus, the Son, and in other moments as the Holy Spirit. And they read the Bible this way. The problem with that is that often in Scripture you see the whole Trinity at work in one passage, which is exactly what you see here. The Son is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit because of who the Father is and what the Father has sent him to do and what the Father is doing. So you see the Father, Son, and Spirit all at work. And you have to know this about your life and relationship with God, that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all at work in you. They're all at work in your life. The Father had a part to play in your salvation, your belonging to him. The Son had a part to play. The Spirit has a part to play. 
The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has reconciled you and I to himself through the person and work of Jesus. And the way he's done it is he's revealed himself to us by the power of his spirit. So look with me. Jesus just said, Jesus is rejoicing that God the Father has hidden things from the wise and understanding. So from the people who are supposed to be smart and know what they're talking about when it comes to religious matters. Jesus is rejoicing that the really intelligent guys aren't getting it because God has hidden it from them. In their pride and all their intellect, God has hidden it from them and not revealed it to them. But he's rejoicing because he's revealed it to what he calls little children. You see, and there's definitely some implications about Jesus' heart for kids. Jesus loves kids throughout the gospel. Throughout the gospels, you see his love for children, his ministry to them. There's definitely some implications for that. Kids out there, Jesus loves you and wants you to walk with him, wants you to belong to him, wants you to trust him in all your life, everything that happens to trust him. But, but the point here is, is not necessarily primarily focused on, on that. What it's primarily focused on is Jesus is referring to the disciples. He's referring to them as little children. And if you remember, in the ancient world, little children did not have any kind of like real like social standing. Like they were, they were kind of viewed sometimes as, as nuisances. Like, like, hey, get out of the way so the adults can talk type deal. And so the disciples and people around Jesus, they keep preventing kids from coming to Jesus. And he's like, stop doing that. Because you, the only way you enter my kingdom is, is like a child. So with that kind of humility and humble faith and trust in me. And so Jesus, if you just catch this a little bit, Jesus has just said, you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding, which means the disciples are not wise and understanding. So, you know, it's kind of comical just a little bit because it's like Jesus is like, hey, you guys are not the brightest bunch, but it's okay. God has looked on you with favor, <laughs> you know, and, and he's revealed himself to you, you know. So anyways, Jesus says, yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is saying, if you want to know God, if you want to know God the Father, then you have to know him through me. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In other words, we, we know God through Christ. And Jesus chooses to reveal himself to whom he will reveal himself. When someone comes to know the Lord, it is a supernatural act of God's grace that God has shown himself to us, called us to himself. His spirit has, has breathed life into us. And he turns to the disciples and he says privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. 
For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. We are are blessed to know God. Christians, we have tremendous blessing from God because we know him. And, and, and I don't use that, that word blessing in the sense of like just, just good, like it's a good thing. I use that word in the sense that God has actively done something to us and for us. He has blessed us in revealing himself to us and making himself known to us so that we would know him. We're also blessed by God because of where he's placed us in redemptive history. You see, Jesus just said that there were people who looked, who looked and longed for the things that, that his disciples would see and hear. They lived their whole lives waiting for these things with longing and didn't see or hear them. But you and I, as we look back on all that Jesus has done, we see the fulfillment of God's promises that he did, in fact, do what he said he would do. We're blessed by the place he has put us in redemptive history because we see Jesus' cross and resurrection. That's a tremendous gift of where God has allowed us to live in terms of the timeline of his plan. We are tremendously blessed by God and we must understand that God reveals himself to us and it's his gracious will to do so. Next, I want you to see, there's this, uh, so now we come to this very famous passage, okay? We can only spend a few minutes on it. And, and I almost, here's, here's what I almost did. I, I almost skipped this passage because I had a friend of mine come and preach this passage in July. Okay? His name is Jason Stevens. Uh, he's the college ministry guy at Sojourn. And he came and he preached an incredible sermon on the Good Samaritan. And it was on July 5th uh, of this year. And so you can go back on our website, on our podcast, uh, and find the sermon from July 5th. And you can listen to what Jason had to say about this passage because it was incredible and it's a lot better than what I'm about to say. Okay? (laughs) I want to show you a few things, though, real quickly from this passage uh, before we move on to the, the next section. Because I think this passage has so much to teach us about ministry and about loving God and loving people, which is really what it's all about. It has so much to teach us that I think we need to hear some of it a second time. And honestly, I would encourage you, keep going back to this passage and reading it again and again because this passage ought to shape and transform our hearts as we approach our world in a time like 2020. Okay, so with that said, I want to look at a few things here. Parable of the Good Samaritan, you've heard this before, but let's see a few things I think Jesus wants us to notice. And what I want you to see, if you're watching from home, uh, I'm told, uh, I updated something last minute, so on your screen it's going to look a little different. Originally I had this point read, we must love our neighbor by crossing the street. Okay. When in fact, I think what we see in the passage is we must love our neighbor by not crossing the street. Because what we see happen is these individuals see someone hurting on the side of the road and they go to the other side of the road and they pass by. 
instead of continuing to walk in their direction and then ministering. And so we must love our neighbor by not crossing the street. Let's look at the passage together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Notice what he just asked Jesus. Notice what this passage is about. He's not asking, teacher, how do, be, how do I become a good person? How do I become a better person? He's not saying, how do I grow as a believer? How do I grow in my relationship with God? He's not saying, how do, how do I be better? How do I grow? He is asking one of the most basic questions, one of the most wide-ranging implications, uh, one of the most wide, it has such wide-ranging implications that it affects your eternity. That's what, he's, that's what he's asking about, is eternity. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, what do I need to do to live with God forever, to have life? That's what he's asking. That's what this passage is about. And, and look at Jesus' response. He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He says, what, is your, what does your Bible say? What does the Old Testament say? What has God already told you about this? And the man answers him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. He says, that's exactly right. That's a great summary of what the Bible has taught us. Love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God deeply, love your neighbor deeply, okay? Jesus says, that's exactly right. You know the right answer, man. And then look what happens. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? I want you to see how how crazy this is. Because he asked about the easier commandment. He's not asking about numero uno, love God with everything that you are. He's like, I got that down, Jesus. Who's my neighbor? Can you help me out here with the second one? I just need to know that I'm, I'm doing that right because I'm pretty sure I am. He's trying to justify himself, and he asks about the commandment that's easier to obey. <laughs> he's pretty confident in himself that he's got number one down. He says, yeah, I love God with with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Absolutely. But who's my neighbor? Because, like, we kind of got to define that one. The first one's easier for me. That's insane. (laughs) Not one of us does this. We all fail at number one. We do not love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We don't. That's why we need the cross. That's why we need Jesus, because we do not do this. Should we strive to do this? Yes, absolutely. Should we grow in this? Yes, absolutely. Do we do it? No. (laughs) We don't. And this guy, he doesn't even see that. He's so confident in himself, trying to justify himself. He says, who's my neighbor? And I just, I just, like, this morning I was thinking, like, what is Jesus thinking when this happens? <laughs> you know? Like, okay, guy, you know, 
All right, we'll just move on from the whole part where like you think you've got this down and we'll address your question. So, because the point is he's, he's not doing this one either. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. You see what I'm saying? The passage says the priest is headed down this hurting man's side of the street and he sees him and he crosses the street and walks apart from him. He passes by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. And so we've seen a priest and then a, a, a devout Jewish man as well both pass by on the other side of the street. Both not care for this man who's been robbed and stripped of his clothing and beaten almost to death. They both pass by on the other side. And Jesus says, well, hold on, before we get into the Samaritan, I want us to ask ourselves, why would, why would supposedly godly men do this? Why would the people who are supposed to know God the best do something like this? Why would they walk on the other side of the street? Well, there's some, there's some, there's some things that we can get into about the Old Testament law and some of the things that might have caught them up as they were thinking through this situation. But, but honestly, I, I kind of doubt that they thought through it very deeply. I think a lot of the time our instinctual response is not as holy and right and good as we think it would be. I think oftentimes, if we just think about today in our lives and when situations like this happen, maybe you say, Pastor, I've never been in a situation like this. You have, you just haven't recognized it. We've all been in a good Samaritan type situation where there was someone in need, someone that was hurting, and we pass by on the other side of the street. We've all been in that scenario. And if you don't know where that scenario has played out in your life, ask God to show you. He's not afraid to. <laughs> he will. We've all had this happen. But, but why, why would supposedly good people do this? I think it's because we make a lot of assumptions about other people. Make a lot of assumptions about other people's lives how they've gotten to where they are. We, uh, I mean, we think things like, if I help him, I might be putting myself in danger too. Like, what if it's a trap? We think things like that. Legitimate concern sometimes, okay? We think things like, maybe, maybe he deserved it. Like, maybe he did something that put himself in this situation where this happened. Maybe, maybe he's a thug. Maybe he's in with the wrong crowd. Maybe, maybe he's done some things and, and hung out with the wrong people and he's just kind of reaping the consequences of that. I mean, you don't know this man that's lying on the side of the road. You don't know him. You don't know what he's done. You don't know who his friends are. You don't know the circles he runs in. You don't know anything about him. All you see is a hurting person on the side of the street. Priest and the Levite don't know anything about this man. 
And he was, he was no doubt bleeding and, and close to death. And like for them to even be close to blood or death was, was to become ritually unclean. And so they had some religious concerns too. We have all these things that we start to think, all these concerns that come into mind. And what we're doing is we are attempting to justify ourselves like the man who asked Jesus the question. We're, we're attempting to say, Jesus, but is he really my neighbor? I mean, like, what if he's done some bad stuff? What if he put himself in that position? Should I then put myself at risk to help him? And he put himself there. He did this to himself. Like, we start to assume things like that and make up excuses for why we don't help, why we don't love. That's what it really comes down to, right? I think these are the kinds of assumptions that are twistedly ingrained in our hearts that cause us not to help and not to love and to pass by on the other side of the street. Look with me, look with me at the Samaritan now. Jesus says, but a Samaritan, you have to understand, this is where the passage would have gotten scandalous. The Samaritans were viewed by the Jews as like filthy half-breeds. They did not like one another. Okay? They disagreed on a lot of stuff. They were diametrically opposed to one another. They did not like each other. Okay? And for a Samaritan to be the hero of the story would have been an insult to a Jewish man like this who's asking these questions. But Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, in contrast to the priest and the Levite, who would have been viewed as like heroes for this man, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. A counselor friend of mine told me one time that there are studies that have shown that compassion is one of the strongest emotions. It is one of the most, it is one of the things in our hearts that drives us more than anything else. It's the only emotion that's stronger than anger. Compassion. And compassion is so at the heart of who Jesus is and what he's done for us and what he's asked us to do as well. Compassion. Circle that word, underline it, highlight it. Compassion. To, to feel deeply with someone. That's what it means, come, to come alongside. Passion is this deep-rooted feeling like like you see that hurting person, you get it. You feel their pain with them, you, and it drives you to action. Compassion drives us to action like almost nothing else. It is one of the strongest motivators that we can have in our hearts. And it is also one of the things that is most often absent. And we need Jesus to bring this about in us. Because we, our temptation and inclination is to pass by on the other side of the street. But the Samaritan, the Samaritan, he doesn't, he had compassion on this man. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. He lifts this guy who cannot move likely very much. I mean, it had to have been like pretty much dead weight. He lifts this guy up, puts him on his donkey and, and takes him somewhere where he can get care. And he's active in caring for him. The next day, he took out two 
denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So here's, here's what this comp- compassion drives this man to do. It's not to just initially help this man who's lying, bleeding out, almost dead. It's not like, hey, let me get this guy set up and then he can figure out the rest of his situation. This man's compassion is even deeper than that, even stronger than that, that he makes sure he's okay, makes sure he has what he needs, and then he's also gonna come back and make sure that there's not still more needs that he can help with. He's got to go somewhere else and get something done. But he, his plan then, because his compassion drives him to do it, is to, he plans to come back and help further. I don't know about you, not you, but I don't often have that kind of compassion that drives me to minister like this. And God, God help us. Because we need it. This is the kind of compassion that Jesus has for us. It's the kind of compassion he will bring about in us if we continue to walk with him closely and serve him where he's called us. He can bring this about in us. And then Jesus, he ends this parable, again, talking to the man who said, who's my neighbor? How shall I inherit eternal life? That's where the question started, remember? It's about eternal life. Jesus says, who of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And so Jesus, he gets this question from this guy. The guy says, okay, Jesus, like, I'm good at the loving God thing, but who's my neighbor? I think I'm pretty good at that one too, so can you just define it for me so I can make sure? And Jesus flips the question on its head. Instead of saying, hey, here's your neighbor, here's how to define who your neighbor is and who your neighbor isn't, which is what the man wants so he can justify himself, he says, no, instead of who is my neighbor, the question is really, how do you be a neighbor? How do you be a neighbor? That's the question. That's what Jesus wants us to see as we think about doing ministry, reaching out, helping people, teaching them to know him and walk with him. How do we be a neighbor, friends? How can you be an, you and I be a neighbor? And, and here's why Jesus ties this into the eternal life question, okay? It, it, what Jesus is not communicating is that if you somehow do all these things right, then you're gonna get eternal life with God. That's not what he's saying. But Jesus knows that this commandment to love God and this commandment to love people go hand in hand and they cannot be separated. They can't. We love God by loving our neighbor. That is what Jesus teaches us to do. We grow in our love for God as we grow in our love for neighbor. We grow in our love for our neighbor as we grow in our love for God. The man says in response to Jesus' question, which of these men proved to be a neighbor? And he says, the one who showed him mercy, he can't even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. 
And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. He said, the way that you can have eternal life is you go be like the Samaritan that you hate. And you love God by loving your neighbor. Last point, and then I'll pray super quick. It's this passage that ends Luke 10. Let me read it really quick. Short point, I promise. I know you've heard me say that before, I promise. Okay. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister, Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sisters left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you were anxious and troubled about many things. Isn't that so many of us? Anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So here's the last thing that I want you to see that we must know from ministry from Luke 10. Is that we too must choose the one thing that is necessary. Listen, Christians, Jesus has called us to serve. And we must serve and we must grow in an outwardly focused mindset that loves God by loving our neighbors. We, we must ask Jesus to bring about in us the kind of compassion that leads us to do that. And then do it. We must serve. But whatever you do, and I know there's this temptation in all of us, that once we start doing all the things, once, we, once we're like serving Jesus in the local church, in our community, doing, doing all the things, we tend to become focused on that, on our service. Just like at the beginning of our passage today, the men became focused on their service and what they'd been able to do. But Mary, she sees what we need to see if we're gonna serve Jesus faithfully and for a long time together. Then what we need most is Jesus himself. What we need most is to sit at his feet and listen to what he has to say to us. Because that is what transforms hearts and lives. Jesus' words. And that is what leads to faithful and fruitful ministry. Is the words of Jesus our Lord. So I hope we'll continue to sit at his feet. And then I hope sitting at his feet, as we're concerned about the primary thing, the main thing, God himself drives us out to love our neighbors. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for you. 175 years of your faithfulness to us, knowing that We've got 175 reasons to be assured of your continued faithfulness to us going forward. 
And that doesn't even scratch the surface because we have your word. God, you are faithful. Help us to become more like you. Help us to grow in our love for you. God, help us to see the way to eternal life. God, help us. We need you. And we give you all the glory this morning for all that you've done and all that you're going to do. In Jesus' name.